but I think it is the case that there could be and should be more farmers out here. You know, we should make efforts to use this, uh, you know, public money for a public good and encourage that kind of thing. This is Ear to the Ground, episode number 305, and the second part in a two-part podcast series on the 2023 Farm Bill. My name is Sarah Goldman, and I am a federal policy organizer with the Land Stewardship Project. The first episode in this series, Ear to the Ground number 304, was an in-depth interview where I discussed the ins and outs of the Farm Bill process and how farmers, rural community members, and eaters could and should get involved in the Farm Bill process. In this episode, we will hear from four Land Stewardship Project farmers who feel the impacts of the Farm Bill in their daily lives and in their communities. Each of these farmers serve on LSP's Farm Bill Organizing Committee, guiding our Farm Bill work and ensuring that farmers' experiences underpin all the policies and priorities we would like to see advanced through the Federal Farm Bill. These farmer members are dedicated to making sure that we write a farm bill that delivers for the people and the land. While these farmers represent just four perspectives and strong voices for change in our federal farm policies, we need hundreds of members speaking up and demanding change to deliver a farm bill for us. First, Hannah Bernhardt, a pasture-based livestock farmer in Northeast Minnesota's Pine County, Talk to me about why beginning farmer issues need to be addressed in the next farm bill and specific ways this legislation could have a positive impact on producers like herself. Well, technically, I'm still a beginning farmer. (laughs) Uh, All of the programs out there um, that I've experienced uh, for beginning farmers have generally had some challenges to them. There's more attention now on helping beginning farmers, but I think uh, there's more we can do and it's important to hear from beginning farmers like what's working and what's not. And in terms of the farm bill, I think there are a lot of improvements that we could make and raise up the challenges that the existing programs cause for farmers, beginning farmers. And just thinking broadly about the farm bill, what are some things that the farm bill could do to address the issues that you just described? So I think the the major one in terms of land access that beginning farmers face is that the loan process through Farm Service Agency is very slow and onerous and takes a long time. And so usually by the time that process is complete, the farmland owner has already moved on and found a buyer elsewhere because it's they just don't want to wait. They don't want to wait four months or more um, for a beginning farmer to go through this process and then they can they can get a better price elsewhere than what FSA will appraise it at. So if there could be a pre-approval process for beginning farmers, that would go a long way into giving them a better competitive chance in purchasing land. Awesome. Yeah, that's a really important issue. And land access, obviously, if you don't have access to land, you can't do anything, any Mm -hmm. farming endeavor. So yeah, why is it important for people to engage, others to engage on the farm bill process? Well, if we don't tell them what's not working for us, they won't know and they won't change it. You know, sometimes in my experience now, like learning more about FSA being on the 
FSA state committee. You know, I have trust and faith in our leaders right now anyway, and they want to make change and they want to make these improvements. But sometimes there's just things they don't know, like they're on the opposite side. And so they don't know what a young farmer's experience is walking into the office and talking to a loan officer for the first time. So they need to hear how those experiences go in order for them to change them. And so the more we can be talking to each other and telling our stories and then sharing those with legislators, the better chance that they can fight for that legislation to change because they need the stories in order to make the case. Next, southwestern Minnesota corn and soybean farmer Randy Kurzmarzik shared his insights on how the current crop insurance program and unregulated consolidation in agriculture have harmed rural communities. As Randy makes clear, the 2023 Farm Bill could play a major role in helping make small and medium-sized farmers major players in the economic and environmental vitality of rural communities. Well, I use crop insurance, uh, you know, as, as with the expenses and high input costs. It's, it's comforting to know I have that kind of that support um, as I go into a cropping year. I've always felt a little frustrated that, you know, in the way it helps me farm my few hundreds of acres, it also helps somebody farm thousands and thousands and thousands of acres and wondered why, if we're using this money to, you know, support agriculture, that there can't be some kind of just um, limits put onto it so that there's, um, can't just um, take advantage of it to any level imaginable. And it really, I think, has contributed to there being less farmers because, you know, you've taken away the risk or at least some of the risk for people who want to expand, you know, maybe without the caring about the community or the farmers around them or wanting to contribute to a more of a family farm-based agriculture. I think just logically that money could have been the federal money, the government money that, you know, all the taxpayers put in could have been better spent in the past, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't make some uh, adjustments and improvements and how we do it going forward. And I know another issue that's close to your heart is consolidation uh, in all areas in the food system. Would you mind sharing why that issue matters to you and how it's impacting you? Well, I, I just think there could and should be more people farming. I think, you know, every for, for decades, um, people on all sides of the political spectrum have supported the family farm um, without, you know, and that's a hard thing to define. But I think it is the case that there could be and should be more farmers out here. Some of that is the marketplace and, you know, that's beyond any kind of control that any of us would have. But a lot of it's been contributed to and uh, encouraged by farm bill and crop insurance and all those kind of, all the pieces of that. And we could just do better with that money we're spending to, you know, to have more people, you know, and really support a family farm agriculture, not just a meaningless, you know, talking point. But, you know, I know, I think we all know lots of young people that would love to be on a farm or own, be involved with a farm or own a farm or be, you know, grow things. Um, you know, we should make efforts to use this, uh, you know, public money for a public good and encourage that kind of thing. So that really relates to my next question. 
if you wouldn't mind just sharing one or two things uh, that you think the farm bill should do to address the issues with crop insurance that uh, you were talking about. Well, I think uh, logically putting some kind of limits in place, and there hasn't been really any that I'm aware of right now. If you want to farm 10,000 acres, you can have it all insured at the same level. And, you know, I think we've been, people have been fighting that for a long time. I mean, why not limit how much we'll subsidize? Uh, but then also encouraging and tying those subsidies to um, good farming practices, maybe targeting it to, you know, more subsidies on the beginning side, you know, just uh, so many things we could do with the money that we're not doing now when it's just all just thrown out there to anybody to do anything with it and grow more and more corn and soybeans and there'd be just uh, better ways to spend those public funds. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with you and you're getting at, I think, a lot of the issues that we've talked about in our organizing committee too about how crop insurance leads to more corporate consolidation and um, makes it harder for beginning farmers to, to start their operations. Um, you're also touching on conservation and, and crop insurance coverage too, which is an issue that is in our, in our platform. So um, encourage folks listening to check that out. Well, land stewardship project's been on the right side of these issues for as long as I've been farming and been a member for whatever, you know, 40 years or something like that. And, you know, that's why I like working with this organization. And, you know, even though, you know, we don't always get the things we're pushing, but um, we're pushing for the right things in most cases. Big picture, what do you, what are your hopes and dreams for the Farm Bill 2023? What do you want to see big picture out of this this huge piece of legislation well not you know similar to talking about crop insurance just all of the subsidies in general that they be targeted to do some more good than than they are right now where it's just thrown out there to the to the wind and you know benefit smaller farms benefit environmentally friendly farming practices um you know it, it seems you know most most farmers i think could support that kind of thing you know and most consumers I think would too it just takes some common sense sitting down and working together and trying to get off the particular track that we can't seem to get off of jumping to a slightly different topic climate change now you know I, I see the farmers around me almost all of them acknowledging that something's going on there so I think they you know they'd be willing to take some of this money and target it to climate-friendly practices and maybe begin encouraging farmers to move to, you know, different types of um, agriculture. You know, I think most farmers would be open to using the farm bill to try to do some good rather than just throw the money out there. So keep um, pushing on good ideas and find um, more and more people to work with and maybe do some, do some better stuff with the new, new farm bill. John Jovog, a farmer from right outside of Austin, Minnesota, raises pig, cattle, sheep, and chickens, and also produces row crops, all in a rotation that enhances the productivity of the soil. John and his family utilize many conservation programs that are funded and authorized through the Farm Bill. John talks about how these programs are instrumental in the family's ability to innovate and evolve their growing practices over the years. We're trying to get our farm to, to, to be as regenerative as we can. We, we're, we're just getting ramping up with more cattle. We have sheep, pigs, 
and all of those things kind of fit into our rotations. We're trying to do more with cover crops and um, uh, roller crimping of soybeans and trying to get as little tillage as we can in an organic system, but yet still produce as much food as possible to get as much healthy food out there as we can. So we're really trying to work at, at integrating the, the principles of soil health within our farm and, and to make it kind of as self-sufficient as possible and, and sustainable as we can make and utilizing and mimicking nature to the best of, of our ability. Just looking at a lot of different rotations where we can have something growing all the time and really building that soil the best we can because it's a resource we want to improve over the years. Why do you think it's important that we win a farm bill that, you know, advances conservation? Kind of what are you and what are your goals for this uh, next farm bill coming out in 2023? Well, the farm bill, you know, whether people like it or not, I mean, the farm bill, how it's structured drastically impacts how people farm because, you know, if that program is changed or, or, or twisted, that will drastically make a difference on what people do. And so that's why having a farm bill that has that focus and that mindset in it can have such a massive impact on how farmers farm because farmers want to, every farmer I've talked to, all farmers want to conserve their soil. They want to have good, healthy food. They want to feed as many people as they can off of their farm. But if the farm bill is structured it, they also have to make a profit at doing what they're doing. And so the farm bill will encourage people to farm one way or another based on how they want to guarantee incomes and, and or guarantee, you know, revenues and, and yields and all that kind of stuff. And if we can adjust that so that it makes farmers more willing to try some of these other practices that have been proven now over many years of trying to hold soil and 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 capture resources and 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 farm in a different way. Farmers will be willing to do it as long as there's, because farming has enough risk as it is. And so I understand where farmers are, are, you know, they're riding with a lot of risk every year and amplifying that risk by trying something. They're not completely sure what it is and they really like the idea of it, but they haven't done it before. You know, if, if there's more protections in that, like, like they have with just regular row crop corn and soybeans, I think that would really encourage a lot more farmers to try these different practices and try these different things. Um, because you have used the EQIP program and the conservation stewardship program, which are two federal conservation programs. Would you mind just speaking briefly about why it's so important to make sure that these programs continue um, and are and are fully funded? Yeah, I mean, the, the EQIP program, that's one we've used a variety of times for different things, whether it's for, for fencing programs, uh, whether it's for trying some of those uh, cover crops. The, the first few years we used cover crops, we really were excited to try them, but we used an EQIP grant to help with at least some of the seed costs to kind of help cover some of that. So we could kind of see how that worked in our system and see how we needed to work it in our system because it takes a couple of years of trying something. Not that you ever know everything, but to, you know, the first few years of trying something, you have a kind of a steep learning curve. You know, having that three years for that EQIP for the cover crops, for example, that gave us those three years to really learn how we need to do it and had help from the USDA and NRCS offices to give ideas of how you need to do that. And then we've been able to kind of integrate that and expand it on our farm, even without the equip now with a lot of cover, a lot of programs where we're not using that for the cover crops, but we're sold on how well that worked based on those first years of having some of that help through the equip to get our foot in the door and to, to learn 
uh, whether it's learning, hey, we might need to tweak equipment or upgrade equipment or whatever the case may be. We learn a lot in those first few years. And, and so that will encourage farmers and get people motivated to keep doing it because there's a lot of benefits that come from it. And you see them, but it, it's not an overnight result or, or with fencing programs or with uh, a variety of other programs that are involved in Equip. There's quite a few things. So, and then the CSP program, that also encourages people to continue with a lot of these the two seem to work very well together where you can start with equip and roll into CSP because then you can really, it really helps uh, motivate and entice farmers to try these new kind of different practices and figure out how they can make it work in their system. Awesome. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned how the programs work together. Cause that's something that we've thought about in, in farm bill work too, is making sure that, you know, there's kind of a, a progression if you're trying new things and then making sure that you can implement those practices that you've tried out for, for years afterwards. Well, I think over the last few years, one thing we've noticed is, is kind of these rain events that when they do come, they're kind of heavier rain events where we might go longer stretches without longer stretches without rain. And then we'll get a lot more rain in a short period of time. You know, you kind of hit some of those and, you know, I don't, you know, how long has that been going on? I don't know, but I've noticed more lately, it seems. What we've been trying to do to try to help with some of those issues is like one thing that we've done that I'm really excited about is this roller crimping soybeans into standing rye. Two things that I've noticed on that is one, we had in one field, we have a wet spot that's out there that's been there for as long as I can remember. We kind of know where it's at. We we had, when we went, the first year I had rye out there where I roller crimped the rye. So the rye's five feet tall when we plant our beans in there. It was a really wet spring. This was three, I think it was three years ago. We were going along and it was wet. We went and looked. We have one tie line that runs through that wet area. And we went and looked at the tie line. We thought, oh, crap, there's no water coming out of the tile. Uh, well, it must have a broken tie line somewhere in there. But, of course, the rise is thick and shoulder high. It's not like we can see it very well. And so we were, when we were planting out there, roller crimping that rye down and pulling the planter behind it, we thought, well, you know, we're going to get, we'll see it. It's going to happen. We'll find this thing somewhere. <laughs> It'll show up. Well, planted the whole thing. We're getting to where that wet spot was. And we could drive right through it. There was no problem driving through that. And we had a wet spring. And I was just amazed that we didn't have any trouble in that spot that we've had every year. You know, it's always been kind of wet. But with that, when you dug down and looked, having that living root in that soil all spring and, and allowing that water to percolate through easier into those areas. And, and that, that just with one or one year that was, but we had some cover crops on the year prior, what that can do just in a year or two to help some of that soil was uh, was was impressive. And then the other thing we noticed is we have a center pivot irrigator on one of our fields. And I had a moisture sensor down there that would say, hey, you know, let you know when you need to run the irrigator. And I was driving home one day and and I saw every other irrigator in the area was on. And I looked at my thing and it said it didn't need moisture yet. And I thought, well, huh. So I called up the guy and I said, hey, I just want to make sure that we shouldn't be running this irrigator. And they said, well, you must have some sort of a problem with your sensor because everybody's running it. You need to run it. I said, well, let's check. And we went out and they swapped the sensor. Nope, still didn't need water. We went another 10 days before we needed water on those beans. And, and so between those two things, when you step back and say, hey, can we farm differently to, to compensate for whatever events, weather events we have? I really believe there's ways we can still farm, farm differently, produce good, good crops and decent yields and do it in a way that can save that uh, water and, and allow water to come in and keep the water in the soil. And so, you know, if you can go another 10 days, 12 days without needing, because you get that mulch on the ground from that uh, roller crimped rye, 
without needing moisture. And then in the spring, where you can get that water down into the ground. I mean, you can handle and compensate for some of these strange weathers that may happen. Finally, here's an excerpt of a conversation involving Scott County, Minnesota farmers, Dana and Mike Seifert, along with Mike's dad, Big Mike. Also participating in the discussion was Ami Duna, a volunteer with the Land Stewardship Project. The Seiferts have made extensive use of working land conservation programs to set their operation on a regenerative path. Now that climate change has resulted in making extreme weather more common than ever, the family feels it's imperative that federal policies support soil health production systems. Part of the reason we switched to no-till and cover crops and regenerative practices is that concern about the ecosystem and, and the fact that we need to we need to be I prefer to be on the forefront of these things, right? Where we're trying to find ways to farm that will that will make us more resilient against those extreme weather changes. Mm-hmm. And if we can, mm-hmm. if it's proven that we can sequester carbon in the soil by doing these things and help offset that carbon release mm-hmm. in in the greater world, and for us too, you know, I mean, by switching to no-till, we save a lot of money in fuel each year. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're a small farm, but I think the first year we, we did no-till, we figured we saved at least $500 in fuel. More than that. More than that. Okay. So, you know, so that takes that's a, a case little bit of stress off. To speak mm-hmm. to your question about mental health, it, it takes right. some of the economic stress off, but not to mention because you both actually pay attention to what's going on in the world. The way I've heard you talk from time to time sounds like almost a, kind of an existential dread in thinking about Olivia. What mm-hmm. is the world going to be like for her? So, good farming is a uh, way to channel those feelings of concern, those anxieties that would otherwise not have a practical outlet yeah. and leave yeah. a person feeling rather powerless mm-hmm. into actual practical steps because good farming is a solution to the climate change crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think when we were living in town, you know, well, we still live in town, obviously, but um, <laughs> when we were, when we were when I wasn't as involved in the farm, we would talk about these things and we'd say, well, what, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And the average person living in an urban environment, you know, yeah. you can buy an electric car or you can, you know, turn your thermostat down or you can, you know, mm-hmm. I guess if you're concerned about the, uh, about the environment in a number of ways, you can separate your garbage and your recycling, you know, but those things don't feel very impactful. Mm-hmm. It's the things that you can do in the situation you're in, but... But it's a lot it, of buying it, into that... Yeah. idea of the carbon footprint carbon footprint which i just recently read was exxon mobil's attempt to put the onus of responsibility for climate change on the individual and yeah. kind of sidestep the systems level mm-hmm. responsibility that they right. carry right and farming is a system it is it is a system on many scales from the individual farm to the county level to the state to the federal and the food system all the way is interwoven with that. So everyone who eats is connected with these systems. Mm-hmm. And it's only changing on the systemic level that's going to really get some good momentum. The tricky is, tricky thing is counteracting the initial inertia of the big businesses that have done well with our previous setup. Yeah. So. Right. But I guess for us personally, having the farm here and being able to adopt some of these practices makes us feel like we're doing something to be part of the solution. You know, so from a, like, from a mental health perspective there, yeah. now you feel like you have some, 
some ability to impact what's mm -hmm. going on, you know, yeah, and that if, and I, and I don't have any illusions about our 100 acre farm saving the world, you know, like that is not going to be the case. But if we can be a model for other people yeah, who yeah. run a lot more land and can, you can say, you have a counter argument if they say that we can't do that on our farm, you know, we, we can't, we can't switch to no-till. We can't use cover crops for whatever reason. You know, our soils won't do it, or the environment's different here, or yeah. we don't have the right equipment and things like that. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time showing that you can, you know. Mm -hmm. We say, come and look. Yeah. 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 Come and look. The, and proof is in, yeah. the proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. We can talk and talk and talk, but if you want to come, we'll show you what we're doing, mm -hmm. and we'll show you what works and what doesn't. And, mm -hmm. and we're doing all of those things with equipment from the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. So it's not like we went out and invested a bunch of money in the latest, greatest no-till equipment. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we like, we're, yeah. like mm -hmm. we're doing compost extract applications. Oh, I mean, cool. I didn't realize we, that. We, we rigged up applicators on various pieces of equipment yeah. for... Hundreds of dollars, not tens of thousands, you know, just with a pump and a controller and some hoses, mm. you have a way that you can put compost extract down in furrow with your seeds that you're planting, you know, so it's not mm. overly complicated. Mm -hmm. It's just getting people, farmers, I guess, specifically yeah. to be able to understand that they can do this, you know, so mm. for me, I guess that's, that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me the feeling that what we're doing is important is that if we can if we can be an yeah. example and say yeah, yeah our little farm isn't going to make that big of a difference but if it encourages other people to yeah. get started then it can you know what so. do you think is the way or what have you been doing you probably have already been doing this getting that message out to other farmers in the community or you guys but not 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 just lsp i mean yeah. we try to get involved in a lot of stuff. Sometimes yeah. mom and dad, I think, wonder why we're part of so many organizations. But we're involved with LSP. I'm a mentor for the Minnesota Soil Health Coalition. Mm -hmm. um, he just got uh, shanghaied. You are, I don't know if you knew this or not, but you are, you are now speaking to the president of the Scott County Farmers Union. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's it was, awesome. wasn't yeah. active, so. So, so we, we've got nowhere to go but up. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. All you can make your policy pitches to both orgs yeah. <laughs> and that's that's yeah. part of the strategy you know and it is it's it's not it's not necessarily so much a matter of just like it, it, it's just trying to get as many people yeah. mm. to hear the message as possible yeah. right so and the more that do and the more consistently they hear that the message of mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. a thing we can do these are practices that will help the more it's going to start to sink in you know mm -hmm. and i think we're starting to see that more and more with farmers too even guys who are traditional full tillage corn and soybean farmers or you know, um, what you'd call it, conventional livestock farmers or dairy farmers, they're starting to think about cover crops. And some of them are starting to play with those things more and start to take those steps. So so those things are hopeful things. Those mm -hmm. things are what we like to focus on. Yeah, I, I've think, been around a long time. And what really upsets me is that for people that, a lot of them that are my age, and they are, they're, they're, they're climate deniers, you know. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, nah, I don't believe in that. Well, if you can't see what's going on here, you know, and you don't see the trend that we're going towards, if you're if you're if you're looking just at yourself, for God's sakes, I look at my granddaughters and great granddaughters that aren't even born yet, and I say, what what am I leaving? What am I doing now that's going to hurt them? And if I'm doing something that's going to hurt them, then I'm really on the wrong track. Mm, right? yeah. You know, I have to be concerned about them. And if you think that that's too far in the future, well, you're crazy. You know, yeah, you're right. really crazy. You're not thinking straight. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go beyond what 
only meets your own self-interest. Yeah. And start looking at the impact you have on the wider yeah. world and on the future. And it shouldn't be a divisive issue. It you should know. be a common sense issue. Mm-hmm. No. Everybody in the whole world should be able to say, we got to watch out for this. This is, this is, things are going in the wrong direction here and we better do something to straighten this out or we're going to make this an uninhabitable place yeah. for our children. Yeah. Right. I'm 75. I won't see it. Hopefully not. But there's a lot of people coming up in the world. There are going to be children and grandchildren of mine that are that need to have a, a decent place to live. There you go. There's my yeah. there's yeah. my proselytizing. <laughs> <laughs> first installment in this two-part series on the 2023 Farm Bill, see the link on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 305 at leonstewardshipproject.org. There you will also find more information on LSP's 2023 Farm Bill platform and our work related to federal policy in general. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at leonstewardshipproject.org or 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician for Ear to the Ground's theme music, and a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.